Why don't we uh, just take another moment to pause uh, before coming to this passage again together. Um, as Sally has been leading us through this morning, why don't we take a chance just to reflect on what it is we're about to do to open our minds and our hearts to hear from the living God. Father, we thank you that we gather before you this morning. Of course, you're with us at all times, but there's something different, something special, something particular about gathering together before you. And we know that with all the busyness and everything else of our lives, it is so easy to perhaps get into a routine of, uh, of just sitting there and watching everything kind of go by. So we thank you for that reminder this morning, actually, to, to sit and to rest and to really reflect and to give space in which for us to hear you and recognize you. Father, we thank you that as we come to your word in these moments, we come to a word that is living and active, that ministers within us, that cuts behind our facades and pretenses to who we really are and it ministers to those deep places within us and so Lord we pray that through your spirit you might do that this morning that you might bring these words to life for us spirit pray that you might fill me now to speak through me that Lord you might mold us and shape us into the image of your glorious son that we might be more like you and that Lord we might find our life in you 
So Lord, we pray you would help us to worship now as we seek to hear from you and we seek to respond to what you would say to us through your word. Amen. If you keep that uh, passage there open in front of you in whatever sort of format you can, uh, you can do that, I think you'll find that really, really helpful. We began our sort of series through Romans last week, um, and we're saying that Romans is, is one of the greatest books ever written. It's not just my sort of opinion, but it's the legacy and the impact that it has had upon generation after generation of believer. And Luther puts some of this down to this. He says, this epistle is in truth the chief part of the New Testament and the purest gospel. It would be quite proper for a Christian not only to know it by heart, word for word, but also to study it daily, for it is the soul's daily bread. It can never be read or meditated too much and too well. The more thoroughly it is treated, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. And we saw that in the legacy of significant people over the course of church history that their journey really began by opening up this book. In Augustine, in Luther, in Wesley... It was a direct encounter with God through this book that changed the course of their life. And so we saw the role that the book has played in inspiring the church. But we've seen that Paul had three main purposes. And it's worth me just sort of reminding you of these sort of over the next few weeks as we go through, just to set some context for what he'll write. He has three main purposes. Firstly, to strengthen the churches in Rome. Paul writes this letter to the Romans, but there's not one Roman church. There's a whole series of different small gatherings, mainly in houses. And he writes to strengthen them. He writes, secondly, to gain support for an upcoming mission trip to Spain. Paul believes his sort of work towards the eastern Mediterranean really is, is coming to a natural conclusion. He's now gathering a collection for the saints in Jerusalem who've experienced great famine. And one of the ways that he believes he can sort of ease some of the tension that there's been at times between Gentile churches who've come largely from being converted from pagan sort of temples and the Jewish believers up in Jerusalem who have this rich sort of religious heritage in the Torah, in the Old Testament scriptures. One of the ways he believes he can kind of heal a little bit of that tension is to bring this offering from the Gentile churches to show their love and their uh, sort of brotherhood, sisterhood with those believers. And he plans to do that and then to venture westwards. The significance of Spain for Paul is that at the time at least, Spain is the edge of the known world to the west. And so for Paul, there's a commitment here to fulfill Jesus's calling to go to Jerusalem, to Judea, to the ends of the earth by going out westwards towards Spain. He wants to strengthen the churches, he wants to gain support for his mission trip, and thirdly, he wants to unite the church there. And we've seen some of that tension that potentially has been there even for the Romans. And so we've left off uh, the sort of first seven verses there of chapter one with Paul having given us a glimpse into his gospel uh, to a people that he hasn't met, by and large, in person yet, and may not sort of fully know himself. And so he summarized his gospel in eight sort of short ways in those uh, verses there. The gospel is an old message. That is that he's saying my gospel isn't an innovation on my part. It is in continuity with the Old Testament scriptures. I'm not departing from the Old Testament. 
I'm, I'm telling you that what Christ has done for you is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He says that the gospel's all about Jesus, that it provides a savior, that it's proven by the resurrection, that the gospel offers grace and requires apostleship, as it sends you out, just as Paul has been sent out himself. That the gospel produces obedience, and that obedience, first and foremost, is to believe, not to do anything. That the gospel is a global message, but the gospel is also imminent. It's also interested deeply, intently with the people right in front of it. And so now Paul tells us why he's writing to a people that, by and large, he hasn't met yet, as I say, and he shows us the power of the gospel. Last week we were thinking about the purpose of the gospel. This week we're thinking about the power of the gospel. And this is Paul's, if you like, in this letter, his sort of interview, his first impression before he actually, hopefully, finally gets to come and meet these Roman believers. So I want to share three things with you this morning from this passage. And in those first sort of four verses from 8 to 12, what we want to look at is the power of the gospel to change your life. Paul begins there, verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. And these words must have been something of a relief for the Romans to hear. Because if I put myself back sort of into the shoes of, uh, of people in the New Testament church, and perhaps particularly as sort of leader of a New Testament church, maybe it's a little bit of a scary thing to receive a letter from Paul, right? Because, you know, he's, he's often correcting people, correcting for people for stuff that, you know, in hindsight, you can look back on and think, that was really stupid. But, you know, at the time, clearly they didn't, they didn't think it was stupid, otherwise they wouldn't have done it. It's a scary thing to get a letter from Paul, so... The relief to hear those first words after that introduction, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Sometimes he's calling people out, but here there's this relief that actually he's really thankful for them. And why is he thankful? I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Their faith has preceded them. It's been proclaimed. It's been celebrated. And why have they become famous? Why, why, why could Paul say that their faith was known throughout all the world? They're not a huge church. You know that, actually, if you skip ahead to the sort of greetings at the end. that it's, This is not a huge church. This is a collection of sort of house churches and things. Don't even know how well they're kind of networked and connected together. That might even be something of an assumption. It's really just a group of faithful believers across the city meeting in different places, trying to love and serve the Lord. But they're not huge. And they've not necessarily done great things. It's not that their faith precedes them because they've done all these great things. They've got all these great programs or anything. We don't really know that at all. In fact, I think what's celebrated, what makes their faith known across the empire, what Paul is so rejoicing in, is that even in Rome, in this stronghold for pagan, secular beliefs, stronghold of the power of the Roman Empire, even here, the gospel is bearing fruit. Your faith is known across the world because even there, of all the places that you might think that this message might not fly, it's bearing fruit. And believers across the world are rejoicing and celebrating in your faith. 
I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, he says. God is my witness whom I serve and my spirit, look at verse 9 there, in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. And I don't know if you like me have sort of read that, and, and Paul will talk like this in other places, but maybe this is the most sort of firmly he puts this, and just feel instantly a sort of sense of guilt that here is Paul constantly, without ceasing, mentioning them in his prayers and think, yeah, my prayer life doesn't quite look like that. Be reassured, I think Paul is using some hyperbole here. I don't imagine that Paul is spending every single moment of every single day constantly remembering them. But what he does want to get across them is, look, you know what, I'm, I, I am frequently remembering because I'm frequently remembering those stories and celebrating that faith that here, even here in Rome, the gospel is bearing fruit within you. And whenever I am praying, you come to my thoughts. You know, you'll know that. You'll have people and situations that you're praying for. And every time that you are praying, it doesn't take too long for you to remember them and for you to send a prayer up for it. I think that's the kind of thought that Paul has here, is that every time that I am sitting and praying, you always do come up in my prayers here. There are people that are in his prayers and that are on his heart. He remembers them. And he has a specific prayer. Look at verse 10. It's not an aimless prayer. It's not just a general prayer that he has for them. He asks specifically for something. Verse 10. Asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. You know what Paul shows us here, just in this kind of throwaway comment, really, is that his times... Even all the suffering that he's faced for the gospel, and he has faced much suffering already, are directed by God's hand and not his autonomous will. There's something really significant in just that sort of throwaway thing that Paul puts there. Asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. He's recognizing that all of his times, even the bits that he wouldn't want to write that way, are directed by God, not him. You know, and we too have many moments of our lives, and you'll have had many moments over the last two years that you wouldn't have written that way. You know, if, if, if we were writing the script, it wouldn't have gone like that. It wouldn't have looked that hard. It wouldn't have looked that complicated to get to that end. But Paul doesn't complain. He says, I pray. Asking that somehow, by God's will, I may not at last succeed in coming to you. Why does he want to come? Well, he tells us here, verse 11, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. And the word there, you know, is they often say it, and I hope that it doesn't come off as that sort of like pretentious sort of thing, but, uh, you know, every now and again I have to just sort of remind you that it, this is initially written in Greek and then translated to other languages. One of the shortcomings always of, of translating from one language to another is that, that words don't always have all the same kind of like meanings and nuances. You know, you'll know this if you're bilingual, if you speak, speak a bit of sort of French or Spanish or things as well, and that maybe that's actually your first language, that, you know, there'll be words that you would use for that that, Yes, you could get an English translation, but maybe it doesn't give the fullness of everything. And so every now and again, we kind of have to do this kind of thing. So when he says, for I long to see you, there's a depth of sort of affection that really isn't put across in the English. 
And maybe that suits us because as Brits in general, we're more reserved and not so good at that. But you know, this is a really passionate word. He's saying here, he's affectionately desirous, that he's yearning to see. It's like a lovesickness. I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. He longs to see them and to strengthen the churches in Rome by encouraging their faith. But what is that gift that he thinks he will bring them? That I may impart to you some spiritual gift, he tells us, to strengthen you. It's probably important just to note quickly that the gift that Paul has in mind is not the sort of spiritual gifts that you might be familiar with hearing about in other passages, even later in the book of Romans in chapter 12, or in 1 Corinthians 2, uh, 12 as well, where we get sort of lists of uh, supernatural sometimes and others sort of less supernatural, like administration and hospitality and things, um, that we get given, that we read of are given to believers by God. This is not what Paul has in his mind here. Spiritual gifts in those other lists are normally associated in our minds with things that are visible, things that are public, things that are performative. That is, things that people see you doing, things that you do for others, and things that put you in front of others. Whereas the gift that Paul is speaking about here is clearly focused on encouraging their faith. He's thankful for their faith. He wants to come and see them because of their faith, and he wants to come to see them so that he can encourage their faith. The gifts that Paul speaks about elsewhere are not given by Paul, they're given by God. It's in chapter 12, verse 3 of Romans, that he writes of us according to the measure of faith that God has assigned, and then he talks of a whole range of gifts that are given to different people within the fellowship. Or in 1 Corinthians 12, he says there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everybody. A person can't impart to you a spiritual gift. God does. So the gift that Paul seeks to give them isn't a gift like that. It's an insight into the gospel and its implications for life. It encourages your faith. That is, he tells us, verse 12, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. You know, and some people here sort of think, what's going on for Paul here? Because, you know, other places Paul can sort of come across as being very sort of authoritative, very confident, very clear in what he's saying. And here he is saying, you know, I want to come to you to impart you some spiritual gift. That is to say that we'll be mutually encouraged. You know, is Paul having a little bit of a crisis of confidence here? He always thinks, oh, I'm going to have to tone this sort of down a little bit and sort of uh, make sure I'm being sort of friendly with them. I don't think so. I think Paul often gets caricatured. I think often in the moments that he has to be strong and he has to be clear and he has to hold to convictions we can wrongly assume that that's him not being friendly, that's him not having good people skills, that's him not being very soft-hearted. That's a very 2021 view of things. can absolutely love people deeply and maintain convictions, maintain a difference on convictions, and still love the other person. And you can also say, that is to say, that we'll be mutually encouraged and not be weak, but be recognizing that this is always a two-way journey. This is never one-way traffic. Paul expects that not only will he come and he will bless and encourage them, but they'll also encourage him. 
they'll offer him just as much as he'll offer them. We see already the power of the gospel to change your life. Look at how it's changed the life of these Romans. That their faith is even known and proclaimed and celebrated across the world. But then secondly, we see the power of the gospel at work in all peoples. You know, a lot of things in life are sort of very much shaped by culture and background and upbringing and things. And they don't always translate to different cultures quite so well. But there are some things that just seem to work no matter where you are. Pretty much no matter where you are, kitten or puppy videos or pictures just make people feel warm, fuzzy feelings, don't they? And if they don't, maybe you want to ask yourself some questions about, you know, what's going on for you. But mostly, for most people in most places, it's, I don't know, it's like some form of black magic. It gets, it gets people sort of chatting together, doesn't it? Or, you know, if animals isn't your thing, maybe it's, I don't know, you stick a child in a costume and all of a sudden, I don't know what it does, but, you know, even the sort of coldness of hearts suddenly wants, oh, that's so cute. Or toilet humour. Wherever you go, you're always going to find some people who find that funny. It doesn't matter. You can have any amount of language barrier. But there's something about it that somehow is funny no matter where you are. Or there's some products, aren't they, that no matter where it is you are in the world, you don't really need to give that harder sell for. People know it. People recognise it. People would want it. Rolex doesn't have to do a great big marketing advertising campaign, do they? People just know when you speak of watches, it's a brand that just comes up. And they haven't paid me to sort of say that, I can assure you. I won't be sort of turning up next week with them up my forearms. There are some things that just work everywhere. And this is Paul's point here, is that the gospel has worked in all people, in all places, and that he's been called to all people and all places. Look at firstly here, verse 13, Paul's desire to visit Rome. I don't want you to be ignorant, he says, or I I want you to know. Your translation might go one of two ways. I don't want you to not know, or it might tell you, I want you to know. Truth is, it could be either, it doesn't really matter. But the point of it is, he's aware that they might not know why he hasn't come. And that's why some of the translations will tell you, I don't want you to be ignorant of. He wants them to know why he hasn't been. There's a chance that they really won't know why it is he hasn't been there with them. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, I've often intended to come to you, but thus far I've been prevented. See, the question may have been to Paul, you know, you've been to all these different places, preaching the gospel, planting churches, raising up leaders. Why haven't you been to Rome yet? Of all the places in the world at the time that you'd want to be, Surely Rome would be the place you'd want to be. Why haven't you come? And so Paul's answer here, firstly, is, well, it's not because I didn't want to come. I've often intended to come to you, but thus far I've been prevented. Paul had wanted to see them. We see that in verse uh, 11. I long to see you. I may impart to you some spiritual gift. He's prayed to get to see them. Verse 10, that you're always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now last succeed in coming to you. And that he's even made plans to come to see them. 
plans to come, verse 13, in order that I may reap some harvest among you. Paul wants to see even more results amongst them. You know, this letter is a lot like an interview for Paul. Uh, And, you know, just in an interview, you have to find those kind of subtle ways to try to kind of sell yourself, try to turn everything to a positive and all your sort of skills and experience. Here is now Paul selling himself, selling his gospel a little bit. In order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as amongst the rest of the Gentiles. And he just drops them just a little reminder of his work in other places, that actually he's seen a harvest all across uh, this continent and a bit beyond. So we see his desire to visit Rome. And then secondly, in this section here, verses 14 to 15, we see Paul's call to be a minister to the nations. Paul makes a little bit of a transition here to explain his desire to visit Rome in light of his call to the world. He tells him here, verse 14, I'm under obligation. The word there is is debtor. I owe it to them to preach. Paul sees it that he must preach to all people, that he owes it to them. He says elsewhere, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 16, if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me, for woe to me if I don't preach. He sees his desire to minister amongst them, his desire to visit them and to do that, is connected to his sense of his calling to all the nations that this is what God has required of me, is asking of me. I owe it to you to come and see you and to encourage you. I'm under obligation, he tells us, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. I don't know what your translation in the English will have done there, but the beginning bit there, you might have both to Greeks and to non-Greeks. And this doesn't do justice to what Paul is saying. The better translation is barbarians. The word barbarians, it's, um, I think in English, the, the term is onomatopoeia, isn't it? A word that sounds like what it is. It comes from Babel. It's a word that is used to describe someone who could not speak Greek. And the idea is not just about not being from a Greco-Roman culture, you know, Greek was the language of everything at the time. It was the language of anyone who was anyone, culturally, academically, or at least as they understood it. So to be called a barbarian was to be recognized that you were a babbler. You spoke another language that just sounded like babbling. You're not part of the sort of cultural elite called both to the Greeks, sort of elites, and the babblers, to the wise and to the foolish. The two things match up at both ends of the sentence. He's called to everybody on either end of the spectrum. Paul feels he's not called to one group, to one class, but to all. And yet cleverly, I don't know if you notice this here, he doesn't tell them whether they're wise or foolish. (laughs) Because I'm called to preach both to the wise and to the foolish, I long to come and preach to you. 
And we don't really know whether he considers them to be wise or foolish. And probably the truth is there's a bit of both, isn't there? But either way, he sees that, you know what? My ministry is not limited to one group of people, but actually is to all. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And his desire to minister to them comes from this sense, this idea of his apostleship, of his calling to all the nations, to all peoples, not just those that society approves of. And that's a significant thing, even today, that the gospel is radically inclusive in a way in which our culture is honestly deeply, deeply uncomfortable with. Because what Paul is saying, in essence, is his gospel is just as much for the investment banker as the bankrupt, for the politician as the pauper. Our culture is okay with the idea of someone going to those who are marginalized at the bottom of society. In fact, actually, quite rightly, you know, our, our culture is going in that direction where we're much more comfortable with that and would say, yes, absolutely. The gospel does not require that you meet any sort of other expectations or anything. It should absolutely be given to those who are right on the margins of society like this, the least and the lost, of course, and that's a good thing. Our culture is significantly less comfortable when it starts to say that the gospel is just as much concerned with those on the margins of culture right at the other end. Our culture's not as easy with that. You see it even in the stories this week, don't you? That quite rightly, sense of outrage, sense of injustice. And it hits all of that hidden inner judicial sort of sentiment, bitterness and resentment that we have for those on the margins of society at the top. We feel great sympathy for those on the margins of society at the bottom, quite rightly. We feel very different things for those on the margins, the other end of the spectrum. Paul's gospel is just as much for those at the top as the bottom and all those in between. There's an uncomfortable inclusivity to it. And this call motivates his desire to visit them. We've seen the power of the gospel at work in all peoples here. And because of that, Paul wants to come and visit them and minister to them further. See the power of the gospel to change your life, power of the gospel at work in all peoples, and then thirdly, the power of the gospel in the gift of God's righteousness. And there's something of a test of nerve for Paul here. I don't know whether you've ever had sort of one of those moments where you sort of, it's like, are you, are you going to crack here? After school, um, I worked in accountancy, and, uh, and one of the things we, we did as a practice is, you know, we dealt with companies that, that went insolvent. Company would go bust, and, you know, we would come in, and, you know, it would be us who would face sort of all the angry sort of people owed money, etc. and we would sort of try to tie everything up as neat as we could. And so one of my actual sort of practical duties is I would have to bank the money that would still kind of keep coming in for stuff. And so one day, uh, I'm doing this, I'm 18 at the time, I'm sort of fresh out of school, and I'm walking, literally a Tesco's bag, and this is in the days, right, before, you know, 
you don't know you're born now with the bags for life. You know, this, this was back in the old days of carrier bags. You know, you didn't have to pay for it, and there was a reason you didn't have to pay for it. Um, and, you know, I'm carrying a bag with me which had, I think, about eight and a half thousand pounds in cash in it. Um, and it's literally just from any old bits of money that people had chucked in. So there's a whole bunch of it in just coins and everything else as well. So it makes quite a significant kind of chinking kind of sound as you're walking along, uh, which later on I, I forgot and would come back to sort of haunt me a bit. But I, I'm walking uh, along to the bank and I'm panicking so much because one of the things I'm thinking is, this is a cheap, nasty plastic bag. You know, what if the money falls out the bottom? and just everyone can see it, uh, you know, how do I then explain it that, you know, I haven't got the money, I didn't get to the bank. So I'm walking kind of as quick as I can, trying not to make eye contact with anyone. I get there super early, too early. That was my first mistake. Uh, or maybe not even the first mistake, but I get there too early. And so I think, oh my goodness, I have to kill some time because I thought I want to be the first person in the bank, just get this done with and get it over with. Um, but I'm too early, so I think, all right, okay, I have to sit somewhere, get a coffee or something, and kill some time. So I go into Weatherspoons a couple of doors out. That was another mistake. Uh, thinking about the kind of clientele that's sort of there at like 8 o'clock in the morning. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I, I go in, I think, right, uh, try and have a coffee or something. We'll, you know, kill some time here. Uh, I forget the weight and the sound of the bag. So I go to put it on the table. It makes a massive chink. It's, it's obviously a big bag of money. Uh, but I'm sat there with a the coffee and I'm thinking, right, if I leave... I'm actually more vulnerable because uh, they know there's a kid with a big bag of money outside of the pub. Um, maybe I'm safer actually indoors. So I have what ranks as the most stressful coffee I've ever had in my life, where I try to, again, not make eye contact sort of with anyone, try to desperately pretend that I was cool and collected whilst under the surface uh, I was so anxious, my bum was sweating. Uh, I've learned that medically that seems to be a thing, that you've got such extreme anxiety. Uh, it really does have uh, bodily effects. Uh, that was a test of nerve, and I'm not sure if I passed it as much as just I did manage to survive, and uh, you know the money made its way uh, to its destination. But here for Paul is a test of nerve. Will he keep preaching the gospel? Will he keep planting churches in light of the adversity that he's faced? And this is a question that I think the Romans would have been asking of Paul and that Paul anticipates and is writing out of himself. And in these next two verses here, 16 to 17, if you wanted to summarize Paul's uh, letter here and the summary of his gospel message in two sentences... These two sentences would be the ones. For I'm not ashamed, he tells them, of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why does he say that, though? We need to ask that. Why would he say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? Why might it be a question of him, are you ashamed of the gospel? How would that even become a thing? That he might feel the need to respond and say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And the word there literally is that he's not disgraced for having misplaced his confidence. I don't feel as though I've misplaced my confidence here. I don't feel as though I'm going back on it. Why? Why might he feel he has to answer that? He's not been to Rome. And they might wonder if that's because he's worried how the gospel will really play in the big city. Yeah, 
You've visited some of these backwater places, Paul, but you've never been to the big city. You've never been to the bright lights. You've never been really to the great minds. You've never really debated with them. Was it a little bit of fear that it wouldn't go so well? I think that's a question that Paul feels might be hanging in the air. And so this statement here is more than just a generic sort of confidence statement, though it does that. But the point is, if you had thought, if you'd been wondering, if I'd lost my bottle to come to you, I wanted to visit. I did not come out of embarrassment. And yet there's more for Paul here. Because think about how much he's suffered for the gospel. Read in 2 Corinthians 11 a list of the things he's faced. Just to summarize a few of them, he tells us five times he gets 39 lashes, three times beaten, once stoned, three times shipwrecked, adrift at sea, physical dangers, betrayals, hunger, the pressure of the, uh, his responsibility for the churches. A day where he's shipwrecked, lands on a beach, and then gets bitten by a snake. It's a bad day. He suffered for the gospel. And yet, and this is important, God has promised him no less. Acts 9 verse 16, the aftermath of his conversion. I will show him, Paul, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. God was good to his word. I must show him how much he'll suffer for my name. So was he regretting it? And here's his answer. No, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I do not feel as though I've misplaced my confidence in the gospel because I have suffered for it. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And this is really significant for Paul here, that the gospel isn't just the message of salvation. It doesn't just tell you about how you can be saved. It is the means of salvation. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That is that it's through the gospel itself that God works in power to rescue those who believe it. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. But why would we need saving? Might be a question that the Romans might be asking. It's a question our world asks, isn't it? Why on earth would I need saving? What do I need saving from? Well, it's not a salvation from low self-esteem, from shame, from hurt pride, from all those, drop a fancy term for you here, anthropocentric concerns, that is things that concern on people. Everything's concerned about what I think or what others think of me. It's not about that. You don't need saving from low self-esteem, shame, or hurt pride. Salvation instead actually is from sin, from offending God, from incurring his just judgment. His salvation is theocentric, centered on what God thinks of us. To be saved by God is to have our relationship restored and reconciled. His anger removed. His grace given to us. Our exile ended. The curse that's over the whole of our earth, the whole of our living and being lifted. 
and hold of sin broken over our lives. The world imagines a sort of conception of salvation as being sort of assured and affirmed that my authentic self actually after all is truly great. And what I need most of all is for people to affirm and recognize that. And what I don't need is anybody who might possibly not recognize that. And anyone who might not recognize that is toxic. And I don't need toxic people in my life. And it's a false platitude. It's a false platitude. Because what do I do as I begin to realize that the deeper that I look, the more that I search myself, as I try to find who my authentic self is, and I realize that the more I find that, the more I know who I really am, the more I see who my authentic self is, I find that I'm more screwed up than I ever thought. Where's my hope? Where's my hope that my authentic self, who it turns out I really am, could be changed? The gospel offers the hope that actually our deepest, darkest parts of ourself actually has the hope of forgiveness and a transformation, that we might be saved from who we truly are. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's to everyone who believes. The only thing needed to find salvation is belief. The, as he's put it in verse 5, the obedience of faith. To believe in who Jesus really is. Salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And again, there's something more there in just like, it's not just Jewish and Greek people, otherwise, guessing that the most part of us today, this then becomes really irrelevant. That is both the one from that Jewish background and the one from that predominant majority culture of the day, Greco-Roman worldview, to the Jew first and also to the Greek gospel reaches out across cultural divides, which is relevant for the situation in Rome. They're saved in the same way as well, both by faith. We know in Rome that there's tension between those of a Jewish sort of background who've become believers from that, and those who've become uh, believers in Christ but have come from a pagan background being raised in Greek culture is one of the reasons for Paul writing the letter. We've said that at the beginning. And some of that comes down to that history of the church. Just to remind you again, we thought about it a little bit last week, but that this is a church that started by returning converts from Pentecost. They've come up from Rome. They've heard Peter's preaching. The Holy Spirit has fallen. They've become believers, and then they've returned home after some days. They planted the churches there. They would have been churches that would have had uh, a very sort of Jewish feel to them. In fact, archaeologists and historians believe that likely not just in Rome, but actually across a lot of places at that same time, that churches really started within synagogues, at least at first, at least until they started maybe to get kicked out of those. 
But then by around about 49 AD, Emperor Claudius has got fed up with constant infighting uh, between Jews and between Jewish Christians, between the idea of who is Jesus. And so all Jews are exiled from Rome in around about 49 AD. This leaves the church in the hands of those Gentile converts now who had come along along the way. And so now power and the nature of it has kind of shifted somewhat. By 54 AD, we know that Claudius is dead and that Jews begin returning to Rome. And Paul writes this letter around about 57 AD. So there's been a significant transition for the church that's begun in a very sort of Jewish sort of background and then really just by force of circumstances, uh, being looked after mainly by Gentile believers. And now there's this thing, you know, as Jews return, and they're not returning to the same sort of positions, you know, even just on a personal kind of level, how are they going to feel about their noses being a little bit out of joint? Actually, they're not really in charge anymore. And how do we find a way forward for us two kind of quite different groups, very different backgrounds and heritages, What place is there for the Old Testament? What place is there for any keeping of Torah or not? Interesting challenges for them to navigate. But it's to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What unites them is the fact they're saved in just the same way through faith in Christ. But how does the gospel have the power to save, lastly, here? How does the gospel save Look at verse 17 there. For in it, that's the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Or you might have it beginning and ending in faith. Or faith from first to last, perhaps. What does that little bit there mean? Well, it's from faith, that is the the righteousness of God is revealed as you perceive it through faith opening your eyes to be able to see him but it also happens for faith that the righteousness of God being revealed produces faith in a believer for their walk so that maybe the other translation puts it across in a simpler way that it's simply beginning and ending in faith from faith for faith the righteousness of God is revealed but how is that righteousness revealed There have been differences over the years in understanding this. The understanding of this verse by the Middle Ages had been greatly distorted due to poor translations. And this is where later on uh, Luther's sort of journey and wrestling with this passage comes from. That in the Latin translation, the Vulgate, which had become the only sort of authorised translation across the world at the time, and there's the significance of such translation problems. Now you can get any manner of translations you want. You can even get sort of surfer Bibles and all sorts of different things. I've never looked at it. Perhaps I should have always wondered what really was that different about that uh, Maybe just Jesus is walking around calling everyone bra or something. I I don't know. Um, But it's significant here if this is the only translation that you can possibly have. And so that literally William Tyndale, as he picks up uh, Luther's Greek translation and and is inspired and thinks, well, what if I could do this in English, is literally strangled and burnt at the stake for doing so. 
It really matters. In the Latin, they translated this and said, in it, the gospel, the justice of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it's written, the just man liveth by faith. Do you see what it's saying? The justice of God is seen in God exacting justice on those who are not just. What a really hopeless gospel. The gospel reveals God justly judging those who aren't just, i.e. all of us. What a miserable little message that is. But Luther, like many others around him, realizes as he goes back to the original Greek that it doesn't say this. It doesn't say this at all. In fact, what he reads is, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it's written, the one who by faith is righteous shall live. What becomes clear is that the righteousness of God is a status. It's a status drawn from God's substance, God's performance towards us, by which we're then saved. As opposed to God's justice, his righteousness being seen in his just judgment of those who are not just, which is utterly hopeless, because nobody is just, Paul will tell us later, chapter 3, verse 10, none is righteous. No, not one. Instead, the gospel is all about how the mess of your authentic self, who you truly are, is met by the righteous perfection of Christ so that you may be freed from enslavement to only ever being able to be who you are. People don't realize it when they say it. But when people talk of finding your authentic self being such a liberating and freeing thing, they don't realize how utterly enslaving it is. What a slavery to only always be limited to being who you are. That's not salvation at all. Salvation instead is this message of the gospel that says, now you might be freed from who you really are to be who you were made to be, a child of God. All through the righteousness of God being revealed to you, for you. See, the gospel is a transaction. It's a transaction of our sin being met by Christ's perfection and righteousness imputed to us. We are not, in and of ourselves, just or righteous. So that if the gospel is God revealing his justice against all who are not just time to say goodbye but instead God grants his righteousness to be imputed on us to be considered on us it's an accounting term it's to be as far as the ledger goes as far as the books are concerned you have it you may not be it yet you may still be in progress on that But as far as the book goes, you're righteous. You have it. As it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. And Paul quotes here from Habakkuk 2, verse 4, the book that we looked at just before considering Romans at the end of last year. And Paul uses it to say that, uh, to explain that his gospel fulfills this. 
This expectation that had come to Habakkuk that the righteous shall live by faith. Paul shows us that actually it's through Christ here that this really is fulfilled. In Habakkuk, God declared his judgment upon all, whether you're religious in doing this or not, who live unrighteously. And it seemed hopeless until you get that final chink of hope in the righteous shall live by faith. And his light and his grace starts to break through in what before that seems to be a really hopeless book. And so Paul does two things for us here. He wants to show that his gospel is not an innovation on his part, but it's the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture, as we've said. And that secondly, he shows that this promise given to Habakkuk is fulfilled in Jesus' death and the gift of his righteousness for us. That we can really lay hold of the righteousness of God and find new life through faith in him. That that promise and expectation, the righteous shall live by faith, is truly grasped hold of in the life and death of Jesus. At the heart of the gospel is the gift of Christ's righteousness for you and for me. And this really is the theme of the letter and where his next few chapters will go. This was... Paul's chance to give something of a sort of first impression or an interview to the Romans ahead of coming to them and sharing his gospel with them here. But the biggest theme is in light of all that he suffered, and in answer to that question, would Paul keep going? Did he perhaps regret all that he'd lost in the cause? Had he lost his nerve in not coming to them yet? Paul wants to make clear, no, I am not ashamed at all. He's not backing down. He'll go to pains to explain his gospel more fully over the next few chapters. But if you see nothing else here in these verses, see this, that the gift of Jesus' righteousness received by faith changes your life. It works in all people and it is the power to save. Why don't we take a moment, uh, again, as, as Sally was talking earlier, for a, a Selah, for a moment just to reflect on these verses and to reflect on those truths and come to God in prayer again. Father God, in a world that wants to tell us that the most liberating, the most saving thing is to be freed, to be able to be who I am, but does not want to be honest about the real nasty truth of that, of finding who I really am. The Lord, your gospel offers true salvation and liberation and freedom to be freed from who I really am in those worst parts, in what I think are those best parts, and that when I scratch away the surface, I realise are just as tainted. Thank you that the gospel offers a freedom from who we are to be who you made us to be. I thank you, Lord, that regardless of our background, regardless of our standing, our wealth, our culture, our class, our education, 
whatever it may be, that the gospel is for us and comes to us this morning and offers us the chance that our sin and rebellion might be met with your righteousness and faithfulness, Jesus. That all of our sin might be overwhelmed and overcome by the righteousness of God revealed for us. Father, we thank you this morning that there's hope of new life because the righteous shall live by faith and that, Lord, by faith we trust that you've granted your righteousness to us. So, Lord, this morning, as we've reflected on the power of that gospel to work within all people, it's the gospel itself that works in us, not any clever words, fancy production values, but just the power of your word. Lord, I ask for those who may not have experienced that yet, that, Lord, you might reveal all the glory and the grace of your son to them. They might know and place their faith and trust in your finished work for them. And Lord, for those of us this morning who are believers, and maybe we come in this morning weary, it's not been an easy time, and maybe we're needing strengthening and encouraging. Maybe the arms are drooping a bit and the knees buckling, and we just need strengthening again. Lord, I pray that you might encourage us once again in these verses, in these truths. You might build us up. That we might find truly for ourselves, in ourselves, life in Christ Jesus. And Lord, maybe for those of us who actually are, are doing well and are encouraged and are excited about the days ahead, Lord, we thank you. And Lord, I ask that you might equip us and empower us, Lord, to be able to share the great joy of the gospel that we've received for ourselves with those you place us around. And Lord, for those who are fresh in their faith, who are growing and in those early sort of exciting days of coming to know you and learn all that you're doing, Lord, we give thanks for where there's signs and evidence and trophies of your grace and new life coming to, to work. And Lord, we pray that we might see more and more of those. Lord, we think of upcoming missions weeks at uh, on the university campuses and think of the CEUs who will be involved in putting things together for that and different speakers and various um, things going on. Lord, and just pray that we would be able to celebrate stories of new life just as Paul celebrates here with the Romans. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful, transformative message that is the gospel that we've graciously been given by you. And Lord, we just pray that you might shape us and mould us and encourage us and use us uh, in this next week ahead. We thank you that, just like Paul can say, that all this time is in your hand and your will. We know that our next week will be too. And so, Lord, we ask you might direct our steps and that you might uh, give us boldness, that we may not be ashamed of the gospel, but may stand for it wherever you may place us. For your glory and our good, we ask it. Amen. I think we're going to...
in a few moments sing again. Um, so I invite you to, to stand with us. <laughs>